glad to be here again. I always I have good memories of coming to open God's word with you all. And I always love the, the hunger that you have for the word and for the gospel. Um, just before I forget, in, in the back, uh, there's a table back there with, if you don't get our prayer updates and you want to, we send them out about every quarter or so. Um, you can just put your name and email on the, on the list. It's just a piece of paper and a pen. And then I brought some uh, books, the transcultural gospel that came out last fall. I had some extra copies. Um, if you're interested, you can grab one of those. Um, I've got a bunch, so I don't want to go back to Alaska with any, and I'll be headed, headed out later this evening. So I'll be back there to greet you and to um, and just fellowship after the service. And also just, just want to say, you know, no, nobody is an island, nobody is a rock, and, you know, I get to stand up here, but my family doesn't travel with me typically. It's just too difficult for short trips, but uh, I have a very great wife. Um, she's sold out for missions for the purpose that God has called us to, and she's, um, she's a dynamic person. My, my two boys, Elijah and Isaiah, they always would love to come, but they also have a, a great heart for what we do, and um, we truly see it as a family ministry. And then I have the privilege of having my dad here this morning. He was able to drive up and visit with me yesterday, and uh, people always want to know who's the most influential preacher in your life, and I, I say every time it's my dad, um, most influential person in my life. So um, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here and to be in the presence of God's people. Um, let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would open our hearts to see wonderful things in your law and that we would have our hearts enlarged to walk in the way of your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, the Anglican Bishop of Perth was in Australia was asked by a reporter if archaeologists and historians made a groundbreaking discovery, a certifiable discovery of the body of Christ in some tomb in Jerusalem, how would that affect your faith? And, you know, I wonder how we would respond if we were walking out of church and some reporter just shoves a microphone in our face, how, what would be the first words out, out of our mouth? And the minister said this, well, it wouldn't affect me at all, for I believe that Jesus has risen in my heart, and that's all that really matters. And likely, the minister, you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but he was probably referring to the hymn that says, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Well, compare and contrast that with what an unbelieving Jewish historian, Pinchas Lapid, who died in 1997, he admitted this. When this scared band of apostles, which was just about to throw away everything in order to flee in despair to Galilee, when these peasant shepherds and fishermen who betrayed and denied their master and then failed him miserably, suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, then no such vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. And then he also says, in regard to the future resurrection of the dead, I am and remain a Pharisee, meaning he believes in it. Concerning the resurrection of Jesus, I was for decades a Sadducee, meaning he denied it. I am no longer a Sadducee. I accept the resurrection of Jesus not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. And then he says, and also... The only explanation that I, as a Jew, can come up with in the whole story of Jewish expectation 
and the evidence that I can discern as a historian, I can only conclude that Jesus rose again on the third day. But then he says this, but I will not conclude that that makes a difference for me. It's a commentary on the hardness of the human heart. But then consider what the secular skeptic and Richard Nixon's special counsel, Charles Colson, concluded upon his analysis of the historical data of the resurrection. He says, he said, I, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Well, how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for a week. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And then consider what Jordan Peterson, the ardent atheist and secular psychologist, has recently admitted. He says this, the Bible is the prerequisite for the manifestation of truth, which makes it far more true than just true. It's a whole different kind of truth. And I think that's not just literally the case. In fact, he says, I think it cannot be otherwise. Then asked if he believes in God yet, Peterson said this recently, no, but I'm afraid he probably exists. He's saying, basically, the same thing C.S. Lewis said in 1944. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Or consider the famous preacher of the 20th century, Haddon Robinson, who trained and influenced more famous expository preachers today than maybe any other professor. Haddon Robinson was doing his PhD work at the University of Illinois, and he tells this story of his first interaction with his PhD supervisor, a German historian, an old crotchety man named Otto Dieter, in the eerie classics library where they, quote, come and spray cobwebs every so often, sat Dr. Dieter, a chain smoker, wreathed in smoke, and Robinson recalls, he says this, I went in, and he said to me, well, what do you want? I said, I want to preach. Preach, huh? You believe you need the Holy Spirit to preach? He says, yes, I do. Well, you're out of luck, said Dr. Dieter. He hasn't been on campus for 50 years. And then there was this long, in the library, there was this long table be, be, um, that lay between them a pulpit Bible. And it was covered in dust. And Dr. Dieter pointed to it and said, you know how that book differs from Aristotle, Quintilian, and Plato? I'll tell you, that book's alive. I don't know anybody whose life has been changed by studying those books, but I do know some people whose lives have been changed by studying that book. The Bible is the most historically verifiable ancient doc document in human history. It is the gold standard for how history is recorded, corroborated, and archaeologically verified and proven true. God has providentially preserved the sacred writings throughout the ages, escaping wars, book burnings, regime collapses, persecutions, political unrest, academic disdain, and social indifference. 
The Bible keeps showing up, proving itself as good, true, and beautiful. Every Ivy League school, the religion department, the Bible is laughed out of class. They're into things like Wicca and other bizarre religions. But in the same schools, in the history department, it is the gold standard for how history is corroborated and verified. Nobody argues with how verifiable the Bible is. If the historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is literally true, then everything Jesus claimed and everything the Bible affirms is true, which is good news for those who receive it and bad news for everyone who views Christ as a myth, a historical figure, a good teacher, a revolutionary, or anything else other than the only mediator between God and mankind. The two most important questions every person must answer are these, who is Jesus and what has he done? And the only way to answer these is to know what the Bible teaches. Anytime a serious scholar, philosopher, historian, archaeologist, scientist, lawyer, or psychologist has set out to disprove the Bible, they retreat in defeat. Some admit their defeat, like the classic scholar Otto Dieter, the Jewish theologian and historian Pinchas Lapid, the secular psychologist Jordan Peterson, but they are too proud to trust in Christ. Some, when they see how the integrity and the power of the Bible turns on the hinge of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, they echo Jesus' once doubting disciple Thomas, my Lord and my God. And I, I pray that this morning you would also walk out echoing a statement of awe and wonder at how the Bible points to the supremacy and the, the marvelous ascension of Christ. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. The Hebrew scriptures were breathed out by the Holy Spirit through men like Moses, David, Ezra, Solomon, Jeremiah, and Isaiah and the prophets. And as they wrote down what the Spirit was inspiring, they knew they were writing about the suffering and resurrection and subsequent glories of some coming Messiah figure. And they knew they were writing for an audience in the future. They didn't just understand who the Messiah was going to be when he was going to arrive, but after his resurrection, Jesus even expected them to understand and believe that the whole burden, the whole burden and the purpose of the Old Testament was to point its hearers to anticipate the Messiah's suffering, resurrection, and ascension into glory, his supremacy over all things. He said to his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, O foolish ones, and slow to, of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concern, concerning himself. And so, as you know, Adam and Eve expected him. Enoch walked with him. Noah's ark foreshadowed him. 
Job expected him. Abraham anticipated him. Jacob wrestled with him. Joseph prefigured him. The Hebrews were redeemed out of Egypt by him. In the burning bush, Moses heard him. On the mountain, Moses spoke with him. The law guides us to him. Joshua followed him. Samson foreshadowed him. David sang about him. Solomon pointed to him. Elijah ate bread and prepared by him. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of him. Daniel spoke of him. Esther prefigured him. Ezra and Nehemiah prepared for him. Isaiah saw and predicted him. Hosea loved like him. And all the prophets wrote of him. And John the Baptist announced him. And we will see how the Bible's central question and mankind's deepest question, they're answered by the resurrection and the ascension of the supreme Christ. We'll see how historians and philosophers, psychologists, scientists, lawyers, and archaeologists and agnostics all alike admit that the Bible is indeed alive, and there is no book in the history of the world like the Bible. We will see how the resurrection and ascension of Christ has made, made such a titanic impact on the Jewish mind. And all the mysteries and the questions of the Old Testament suddenly are just revealed and answered in the resurrection and the ascension of the Messiah. And so at the resurrection and ascension, the blessings of God are blown open like a massive dam giving way to a reservoir of life-giving water. And anytime you hear language that elevates Jesus as true and better or resurrection-oriented language, that's all code for his supremacy. So let's look at one picture of how the Bible points us to Jesus Christ in his threefold office as prophet, the better prophet, the better priest, and the better king. In Psalm 22, we see this famous psalm that prophesies the crucifixion of a Messiah figure in shocking detail hundreds of years before the historical founding of Rome and the practice of Roman crucifixions before they were ever imagined. The end of Psalm 22 says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So Psalm 22 is about a prophet, and its message is righteousness achieved. Here, even David, by the Holy Spirit, knows he's writing poetry about a coming divine king from his royal line. And some future generation will hear the proclamation of this divine king's achieved righteousness. And more specifically, a future people will hear the announcement that this Messiah king, he has done it, that he has secured righteousness for his people. Here we have a psalm that announces a coming prophet and his righteousness, but that gives way to the very next psalm literarily is the famous psalm, Psalm 23. Psalm 23, another famous psalm that we love to sing and pray and meditate on all around the world throughout the ages. We've memorized, prayed, and cherished this, especially in seasons of death and suffering. Psalm 23 is connected in the literary context to the end of Psalm 22, which announces the coming prophet's achieved righteousness in Psalm 22. But Psalm 23 starts by illustrating metaphorically how the divine Messiah will shepherd his people like a priest and lead them in paths of righteousness. Psalm 23 is about a priest, 
about applied righteousness. In verses 1 to 3, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Psalm 23 takes the prophet's righteousness achieved in Psalm 22 and shows how this priest shepherd who comforts his people now applies righteousness to them for the glory of his name. And then that leads into Psalm 24, the better king. Righteousness announced. This psalm consists of three parts. Each part is a different scene. It paints a picture, a portrait of God. So verses 1 to 2 is God as creator. Verses 3 to 6, God's Mount Zion, or God's holy mountain. And verses 7 to 10 is the victorious king, the supreme king. According to Jewish tradition, this psalm was used in worship every Sunday in their captivity in Babylon. In the exile, Jews celebrated Yahweh's kingship and supremacy on every day of the week, but Sundays were reserved specifically for Psalm 24. And according to Christian tradition, Psalm 24 was always sung on Ascension Day. And throughout church history, Christians have interpreted this psalm as pointing to Christ's resurrection and subsequent ascension to supremacy. So again, scene one is the earth. God is creator, verses one to two. And scene two is heaven, God's holy mountain, verses three to six. This second scene is the mountain of the Lord, or Mount Zion. The historical referent here is the hill leading up to the temple in Jerusalem. But theologically, even the Jews sang this while they were exiled in Babylon, and the early Christians no longer needed to go to temple to worship the Lord. And this psalm is indeed painting a picture of the heavenly Mount Zion. And remarkably, as verses 1 to 2 speak of God's initial creation of his dwelling place on earth, verses 3 to 6 allude to the paradise lost in the Garden of Eden because actually Eden, fascinatingly, was a mountain. It was called the mountain of God. Ezekiel 28, 13 to 16 says this. There was a garden on the east side of Eden so Eden was a mountain, and there was a garden on the east side of the, of the mountain at the top, which is where God dwelt. It was a garden temple. It was a mountain garden temple. It's no coincidence that after Moses gave the law, the interior of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple are decorated like a garden. And the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22 is described as a garden temple with the imagery of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple and the Garden of Eden. And when Adam is banished from God's presence to the east of Eden, God put cherubim there threatening death to anyone entering the perfect presence of God on his holy mountain. And in this psalm, David, he looks up to Zion and he asks the obvious question, who can enter? Who can go back? Who can enter the presence of Yahweh, the Holy One? And the answer is, comes back to him that only the blameless, only the blameless shall enter his presence. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness 
from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. See, the Lord expects purity, singleness of heart for all who seek his presence. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of hands, heart is the condition for living before God. Appearance of holiness is not enough. Perfect holiness is enough. Life with God in his garden temple on the mountain of God was the original goal of the creation in the cosmos. And that is the goal of redemption. The prophets offer glimpses of this reality in their descriptions of God's final redemption of his people. In the closing pages of John's revelation, we see God's people dwell in the light of his glory. But here, the question is, how can this be possible? Like Psalm 24, or 27.4 says, One thing I've asked of Yahweh, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in his temple. But how can this be possible? How can any one of Adam's cursed descendants, dirty descendants, ever hope to dwell in God's presence in heaven's Mount Zion, let alone ever have the chance to meet with God in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies? How is it even possible for a guilty, shameful, fearful person broken by the curse ever to enter the Holy One and live? Not to mention all this talk about dwelling joyfully in the presence of God in Mount Zion. Well, one, one commentator says this, in many ways, this is the fundamental question of Israel's religion and indeed of life itself. O Yahweh, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy mountain, Psalm 15, 1. And in Psalm 24, he says, similarly, the question is, who may ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? The burden the burden of the Old Testament and the controlling question in the Jewish mind was, who can ascend the mountain of Yahweh? This is the unsolved mystery that baffled the Jews, which the New Testament unveils. So the question is, since we have the New Testament, well, what about us? Is this about what we must do to enter the presence of the Lord? Is this instruction for us to grow in integrity so that we can have a better relationship with God. The burden of verse 3 is simply saying that the ground that you stand upon in the presence of God must be essentially blamelessness, holiness, purity. So let's ask the question, are your hands clean? Is your heart pure? Have you ever let your heart follow after things that are false, worldly, and vain? You always speak the truth. And more than just occasionally thinking, about something, what do you find yourself habitually daydreaming about, fantasizing about, meditating on? What comes out of your mouth based upon your thought life? Daydreams, desires, aspirations, words, time management, financial spending. Could you ascend Mount Zion and stand in this holy place? Are you good enough? Must you try harder, be better, follow the rules more, surrender all? If you were good enough, what would the result be? Well, the one whose hands are clean and pure, they'll receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of their salvation. So is this a prescription for us to try harder, to grow in integrity so that we can come into his presence blameless? Does the Bible teach that if we do this, we'll receive righteousness? Well, yes. The guarantee is for anybody who has ability 
and desire to perfectly and perpetually love God and neighbor, they shall indeed receive righteousness. Verse 5 tells us that the man who has clean hands and a pure heart will not only ascend Mount Zion and stand, not fall, but stand in his holy place, he will receive blessing and righteousness. And any good Hebrew who read this psalm or heard this psalm would remember that only 10 psalms earlier in Psalm 14, David says, there's none who does good, not even one. So the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place must be perfect, as God is perfect. But there's one problem. The Bible says that for Adam's descendants, there's no one righteous, not even one. But there is only one, the Son of God, the better Adam, who is able and worthy to ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in his holy place. That one, with clean hands and a pure heart, will receive well-deserved, well-earned blessing and righteousness. But you know, the psalmist does not abandon us whose hearts and hands condemn us. You might ask, well, how do you know? What do you mean? Well, look at verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So do you hear what the psalmist is saying? The people who seek the face of God will receive blessing and righteousness. Those who look to him have access to him. So on the cross, as prophesied in Psalm 22, the righteousness achieved by Christ is credited to all who believe, and the sin of all who believe is credited to Christ. It's the great exchange. And the Bible more clearly explains in Romans 5, 1 and 2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What's amazing is that in verse 6 of, 20, of Psalm 24, the Hebrew construction is, says this, such, or here is, this here is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, and then it and then it's just says, Jacob. It's like there's a hyphen or a dash. Jacob. In other words, the people who seek the face of God are identified as Jacob. Compute. What does that mean? Jacob was one of the names of the true people, the true spiritual people of God among ethnic Israel. They are the remnant. They are the true God seekers. They are those who are credited with righteousness through faith. They are the children of Abraham. They are the true people of God. They, they are those who have faith alone in Yahweh, and by their faith, they are counted righteous. They are the God-seekers, and they receive blessing and righteousness, not because of them, but because they are united by faith to the one who has ascended the mountain of the Lord. It's amazing. This is good news. And then enter scene three, Mount Zion's gates, God as victorious supreme king. We now come to this third scene, the city gates on top of Mount Zion, as Psalm 22 spoke of the prophet and his righteousness achieved, and Psalm 23 spoke of the priest and his righteousness applied. Now, Psalm 24, we see the king and his righteousness announced. 
It's the final stanza in the psalm, and it's, there's a sudden shift of mood. Suddenly, it turns celebratory. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Mount Zion has gates and ancient doors that open up for Yahweh, this warrior king. And throughout the history of the church, this is one of the main texts to commemorate the resurrection and ascension and supremacy of Christ in heaven's Mount Zion. It's a beautiful psalm if you understand the moving scenes throughout the point of the psalm makes sense messianically, especially as it connects to Psalm 23 and 24, or 22 and 23. Let's, so let's review the movement of scenes. So verses one to two, a majestic sovereign God rules over the world as he did his garden temple on the mountain of Eden in the creation. And then verses three to six, the psalmist inquires who's worthy to ascend Mount Zion and answers that the only person who has clean hands and a pure heart can do this. And the reward of that person, that blameless man, will be divine blessing and righteousness to all who seek him. And for God's true remnant who seek his face, that reward is applied to all of them. And then in verses 7 to 10, exploding onto the last scene are the gates of the city of God, bursting with celebration and anticipation. It's an electric scene. So picture it. A man, a man is ascending the mountain of the Lord in, in heaven. A man? Yes, a descendant of Adam, of Adam. From earth, an earthling, an Adamite. This has never happened. This has never happened before. Ever since Adam was banished from the garden, none of his descendants have ever ascended the mountain of Yahweh and stood blamelessly in God's presence. And the face of this man has never been seen before in heaven. But this person is no stranger to Mount Zion because only 33 years prior, he was heaven's eternal son. But now the son is ascending in a body, an enfleshed person like Adam. He is the son of God and the son of man, the God-man. He is the divine human one. His name is Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus Messiah, Joshua, the anointed one of God. See, Noah's ark ascended Mount Ararat. Abraham ascended Mount Moriah. Moses ascended Mount Sinai. Elijah ascended Mount Horeb. But no one has ever ascended heaven's Mount Zion. But here comes the better Adam who makes a way back to Eden. Here comes the better ark who rescues God's people from the flood of judgment, the better Moses, who delivers God's people from slavery to sin and mediates a better law, the gospel of grace, a better Joshua, who crosses through the Jordan River and brings God's people back to the heavenly promised land, the better Israel, who obeys the law of God perfectly and secures its blessings, the better David, who leads the people of God to victory over the accuser, a better temple, in whom God's people worship, a better priest who makes intercession for the people of God, and the better Passover lamb 
who takes away the sin of the whole world of those who trust in him and are covered by the blood. This man is God, and he is with God. He is God with us. And by this man, all things were created. By this man, the story of human history was written. He governs all things. He is the melody line in the symphony of history. He is the foreground and the masterpiece of creation. He is the lead actor in the theater of God. He is the defense, the offense, the special teams, and the coach and the most valuable player of the winning team. He is the father of the fatherless, the friend of the lonely, the hope of the hopeless, the strength of the weak, the husband who never leaves you, the physician who heals you, the shepherd who guides you, the rescuer who frees you, the judge who vindicates you, the warrior who protects you, and the lamb who dies for you. Most major religions treat mountains as holy places. I've been to the highest lake in the world in Tibet, and it's covered with prayer flags and the, these high mountains. There is something untouchable and mysterious about mountains. Deep in all of our hearts is this question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The answer is the risen Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord potentate, the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has died and raised from the dead, the cherubim guarding the holy presence of God has stepped aside and now lets in all of God's people who through faith are united to this Messiah and are credited with his righteousness. They enter into the blessing of the Lord because they're clothed in righteousness. They are the God seekers. They receive the blessing of the, that has been earned by the ascendant supreme one. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered death through death, dying for his people and rising victoriously, supreme over death itself. And he succeeds himself as the rightful sovereign of heaven and earth, ruling from Mount Zion as the son of God, the son of man, the son of David, God's mountain garden temple. Then, once this man broke out of the tomb. He was in the garden. What's interesting in John, Mary finds him. John says, she mistook him for the gardener. It's a theological illusion because that's exactly the point. He's now the gardener in the new garden of God. We are the, we are the vineyard of his planting. Jesus is the new gardener. He's the new Adam, replanting the garden of God, building the temple as the supreme one. He fulfills it all. He ties it all together. And once this man ascended heaven's Mount Zion, what did the king of glory do? Open the doors, open the gates, enter in the king of glory. What did he do? Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And ringing through the streets of the city, the worshipers of the Lamb saying, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, 
for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. In his spiritual autobiography, John Bunyan said this, One day, as I was passing through the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with my eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus, as it were, at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. For those of you who trust in this risen, reigning, supreme Christ, your righteousness has been achieved and is applied and announced. And so you can be assured that you stand in the presence of God by grace. Your righteousness is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You can say with Job, looking forward to your own resurrection, I know my Redeemer lives, and that at the last, he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. And may we rest in the work of our supreme, resurrected, victorious King of glory, the Lion of Mount Zion. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this picture of you. We do pray, God, that we would bow in worship because you have made a way for impure, defiled hands, eyes, mouths to stand and not fall, stand and have access by grace into your presence. Oh, God, would you please be honored to keep us persevering, enduring by faith, assured that our righteousness is not derived from ourselves, not earned, not maintained, but is seated at your right hand. And it's in the name of